We're in Acts 4 today, as we've been working our way through this, this book of chapter by chapter. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So uh, pretty simple to find there at the beginning of the New Testament. <clears throat> so in the last two weeks, what we've seen is uh, Peter and John preached the gospel in the temple uh, after God had healed a man miraculously, and, and the people listen, a number of people actually uh, come to faith in Christ, and then they get arrested. And they spend the night in jail, and then the next morning, they stand before the Jewish council, which is 71 men uh, who really could do some, some damage to their life. Uh, and this council commands them, <clears throat> don't talk about Jesus, don't talk about the resurrection, just be quiet. Um, and, and that's really what it is. And so uh, the apostles then respond, you know, um, we can't but speak of what we have heard and seen, or rather seen and heard. Uh, and the council threaten the, threatens them again, finds, you know what, we don't know what to do with them, um, don't know if this is going to work, but they release them, they set them free. Uh, and that's, that's where our text picks up today. And so we're going to look at Acts 4.23 through Acts 5.11. Uh, we're going to take it in three sections, and the first section is going to be Acts 423 to 31. So follow along as we, uh, as we read that portion. <clears throat> when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, your word changes us in a way that nothing else does. It reminds us that we are under your authority. It reveals to us your great love for your people. It helps us remember that there is more to life than the world we currently live in. Give us strong faith today. Make us to be bold in our prayers and in our generosity and the way that we speak the truth of the gospel, even when it is difficult. The truth, anytime it's difficult. Uh, Lord, though it's early this morning, we ask that you would help us to focus uh, on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you can imagine just the relief that John and, and Peter and the others might have felt at this moment as they were released without any further punishment happening on them. Uh, and the first thing they do is a very natural response. It's something that most of us can imagine doing. They go to their friends. Uh, and, and the word friends here is, is literally the word their own. Uh, they went to Christians whom they were close with, who they trusted, who they knew cared about them. And, uh, and their friends asked them something along the lines of, so what happened? What, you know, we, we saw that you had to go meet with them. Tell us about it. And, and they told them, well, the, the council told us not to talk about Jesus anymore. Don't preach the gospel anymore. 
Um, and so their friends got together and were like, oh, great, let's, let's hire a lawyer and we'll sue them. Um, that's not what it says. It almost sounds normal to us, doesn't it? That's uh, not what they said at all, though. Really, what they do is, is more effective than that response. What they do is start praying together. When's the last time you heard something from your friend, something scary, something sad or anxiety-causing, and, and your first response was, let's pray? Not, I'll pray for you later. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but not that even. But that your first response is, let's pray. See, the better we understand that, that prayer, prayer for each other, is not just a, a polite gesture, uh, but a powerful action, the more we're going to find ourselves praying in the way that we see these early Christians actually praying. And what's, what's interesting here is, is their prayer. They don't pray for the persecution to be removed. Honestly, that'd be my first thing. Let's just pray that it's removed. That'll make everything a lot easier. Uh, rather, they pray for strength to continue to speak God's word with boldness, despite of all the danger they're facing. Uh, keep in mind here that the boldness means that, that we're not hesitating or, or fearful in the face of danger. Uh, what's great in this prayer is that their, their view of God, their, their theology, is exposed in a way that really, really helps us understand how part of the answer to their prayer is found in, in their understanding uh, of God's strength. You might say their, their theology is, is the fuel for the boldness that they are actually asking God for in this moment. See, twice in this prayer, they refer to God as Lord. We'll see it in the text. You'll see Lord. Uh, it's actually two different words in the Greek, Greek language that are both translated Lord. Uh, in verse 27, it's the more common kurios, which means master or owner, someone who is over you. Um, in verse 24, it's a, it's a word uh, des, despota. And that means absolute master or ruler. There's a stronger strength there. There is, there is this idea of this absolute unrestrained power. That's why if you've got the ESV, some translations actually add the word sovereign there, the sovereign Lord, just to, to help you understand that we're talking about someone with absolute power. That's who God is. And you notice in this, this prayer, then, the, the contrast between God the Father being the ultimate master and, and how everyone else is referred to as a servant of some sort. David's called a servant. Jesus is called God's holy servant. Those praying refer to themselves as servants. See, they have this, this central focus to do the will of their Lord, and that means, boldly speaking God's word, that they are servants in that regard. <clears throat> and their prayer reminds them that, that God is the sovereign creator of everything. And that's significant. Uh, what we see after that is they quote. They're, they're quoting from a psalm. It's Psalm 22, and it's just a tiny little portion of Psalm 22. Uh, what Psalm 22 is about, though, is how the plans of people, even powerful people, are absolutely no match for God. They plot, but they plot in vain. Uh, Psalm 22 continues even beyond what's quoted here. It even says that he who sits in the heavens, that's God, laughs. Basically, people will fight against God, and, and God's not really worried about that. It's like when a, a young boy wrestles their father. Uh, it's an almost humorous interaction, right? Uh, Becca might use absolutely all of his force and, and attack me and, and come at me with great strength that he considers a great strength. Um, and really, at this point, it is no concern for me. Uh, someday, maybe. Uh, <clears throat> but it is no concern. All of his force is really of no concern. You see, we might panic. We might find ourselves freaking out about what's going on in the world, in our personal life, in the world around us. But God does not. He just doesn't. 
It's not outside of his knowledge. It's not outside of his control. And that's the point of verse 28 here. God didn't just know that Jesus would be crucified. He planned it. Look at verse 28. It's saying that these people were uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I can remember years ago, uh, sitting in a restaurant with my grandmother and other relatives, and, and my grandmother was a Methodist growing up, and she heard I was going to a Presbyterian seminary, and her, her response was just this shocked. They believe in predestination. And I was like, so do, so do I. Uh, and then it was kind of bolder. Grandma, the words in Scripture, like, you don't have to like, define it the same way, maybe, but you have to believe in some idea of it. The word's in here more than once. Um, literally, the Greek word there means to determine beforehand. Verse 27, then, is very detailed of pointing out that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles were all under the sovereign hand of God to accomplish God's will. And you might not like it. We might see this, and it doesn't sit right with us on some level, but it's, it's here in the Word of God, so we can't deny that God has predestined even the death of His own Son for our benefit. But why do they mention it here? I think that's the question that really strikes me. Why in the world mention it this, in this moment? Because this isn't some theology class. This is real life, and they're facing real issues in this moment. And I think the reason they mention it is because all of their prayers, all of their requests, are conditioned on whether God is actually powerful enough to provide an answer to that, uh, the answer that they seek, that they're asking for. See, if you ask me right now after, after the service, you can come up and ask me, can I have a million dollars? That would be the biggest waste of time ever because I can't get you a million dollars. I don't even know where to find it. I just couldn't. But they're asking God here to make them bold, to continue to speak his word. This is a worthwhile request because God can actually accomplish this. In fact, God can accomplish absolutely anything because nothing is outside of his control, and so he can answer any prayer that we might have. That is a powerful thing when you realize that. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, speaks to why it's good for us that God is sovereign. I mean, that, that it's true is one thing, that it's good for us is a comforting thing. Uh, question 28 asks, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And the answer is, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand, that without his will, they cannot so much as move. And so they pray for boldness. And in verse 31, we see that God does grant their request exactly as they ask for it. He does that in a very powerful way. It says, the place was shaken. And that the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness, even in the midst of great danger. And so he does answer it. You and I, we don't face the same threats when we speak the word of God. Um, but it would do us good to pray the same prayer, even now, 2,000 years later. You know, Lord, make us bold to speak your word or make us to speak your word boldly. Now, uh, they're unified here. We're seeing this. Uh, they're unified in the gospel, and we're going to see in this next section the way that it shapes their life together. Uh, verses 32 through 37. Read with your eyes, and, and uh, I'll read it out loud. How about that? Uh, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the early church wasn't perfect. Sometimes we can kind of see this idealism and just think, wow, they were absolutely perfect. They weren't, because we know many of Paul's other letters uh, end up correcting some very serious issues, serious that we don't even dream of seeing in the church. Uh, But here we see that there was a love for God and there was a love for each other that led to the practice of bold generosity in the church. Uh, Luke says from the start here, he says that they were of one heart and one soul. Um, That's some pretty serious connection there. Uh, it's not that nothing belonged to them. You've got to be careful here the way you read this, that you understand it. It's, uh, you know, because you, you see that. Um, it's that they, none said that it belonged to them. If you look at verse 32, it said, No one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. Meaning they, they saw that God had given them these things so that they might share them with others. That's a healthy way for us to look at our possessions. This is not ultimately my car. This is God's car so that I might share it. See, the early church embraced this idea, then, and it resulted in this absolute bold generosity between them. They weren't afraid to share what they had because they trusted that God would provide for them, even, even when they shared what they had. And, and let me be clear here that, that generosity really is not optional for the Christian. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. So there are many needs all over the planet. Uh, and, and there are wonderful ways for us to be generous in our day about those things. But our text today, specifically here today, is about how we show love and how we show generosity or how it's practiced in, in the church community. Uh, notice they didn't care for the needs of everybody, right? It says everyone in, in Jerusalem. It says there was not a needy person among them. Uh, Galatians 6.10 is even more clear. Galatians 6.10 says... So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, we're called to a bold generosity that believes what Jesus said in Acts, Acts 20, 35, or at least what's recorded there. It says uh, that it is more blessed to give than receive. That is not an easy statement to believe in practice. It just isn't. Uh, if you have kids, you know this. Uh, it's not a very, uh, it's not a natural thing to share. It's a learned thing, something that we actually have to go through the process of learning. Uh, your kid might have a room full of toys, just tons of them, you know, endless amounts of them. But as soon as some sibling, some friend wants to use any one of those toys, it turns into Lord of the Flies, like, immediately. Uh, you know, someone's, someone's going to be sacrificed as the beast at this moment. Uh, and, and that's the way it goes. But parents must teach their children. To be generous. It's not a natural thing. Our, our Heavenly Father continues to teach us as His children to be generous. It's, it's modeled for us in the gospel. God didn't need salvation, right? He didn't need salvation. God didn't need His sin forgiven, but He generously gave His only Son. What can I hold on to as, as unshareable in the face of that kind of generosity in my life? Uh, let me r- remind us all, though, that generosity has absolutely nothing to do with how much we have. 
uh, how much we were able to give. Uh, even a small church community like this, we have many opportunities to be generous. We have a, a mercy fund that was established by the generosity of someone in this room uh, who wishes to be anonymous, uh, and it's used to help those who have financial need. Know that we have that also if you find yourself in that need. Uh, you can give to it, contribute to that fund at any time, and the more that's in that fund, then the more we're able to collectively help those in the community that need help, uh, or to help those who are serving those outside this community in the name of Christ. Uh, also, this can't be overstated, if you see some need, meet it if you're able to. Uh, maybe in the form of just an, an envelope with some money in it, right? That'd be nice at times. Uh, but also, many needs don't even require money. Uh, you see a couple whose marriage could, could use a night out without children? Provide that. Uh, we have people in this town moving all the time, across town, out of town, uh, into town, whatever it might be. If, if you can carry a box, I think sometimes we opt out of that because they're like, I can't carry a hundred pound whatever, but can you carry a box? Uh, then, and you have time, then by all means, show up, help them. Uh, to be generous, it means that we must have something to give. Uh, perhaps we could be more generous if we found a way to simplify our own lives, and that's something to consider. We, we could all do well every so often to evaluate our lives by asking this question, how can I be more generous? Uh, do we need to tighten our budget uh, and spend less on ourselves so that we can give more to others? That's a fair question. Uh, do we need to say no to some things in our schedule so that we can have more time to be able to, to be generous with our time? You know, where can I cut back on indulging myself and my wants so that I might be a blessing to someone else? Uh, honestly, uh, the hardest part of generosity is letting go of what God has made you a steward of. Uh, sometimes we, we limit our generosity, or, or the, we limit our generosity to just giving what we don't want. Uh, and that's the end of it. Uh, we, we took our kids trick-or-treating down in Aggieville. They do this once a year. Uh, I think it was two Fridays ago. And, and this past week, uh, Berkeley comes up to me and says, Daddy, I have some candy for you. I thought, that's sweet. But she didn't stop there. It continued to say, because I don't like this kind. <laughs> you know, what kind of candy does a six-year-old not like? It was fortune cookies, which raises the bigger question. Who gives out fortune cookies? <laughs> but giving out of our excess or leftovers, or the things we don't want, that is too easy. But that's not what our God tells us to do. See, the question of bold generosity is this. Can I let go of things when it actually costs me something? That's that sacrificial giving. I, and, and I get it. I totally understand the mixed emotions. I feel them. I, I could buy you lunch and, and listen to what's going on in your life, or I could buy myself a sweet Astros hat. How much do I really like you? You know, that's kind of the question, right? Um, I could help you move, or I could sleep in, and boy, do I need some sleep. Or, you know, I could buy some Starbucks for me, or I could alleviate some of their unexpected financial stress. Um, something gets sacrificed there. Uh, so let me make sure, though, that we understand this in a healthy way. I think sometimes we just... Let's go all in with generosity. Um, every stage of life that you are in is different. Uh, your family at home might be where your generosity is most needed. There is no shame in that. Uh, that is a legit place for your generosity to be poured out. There is nothing noble about, about serving a meal at the, for the homeless uh, while your children consistently sit at an empty table at home waiting for you. See, each stage of life that God has you in will give you different opportunities from which to give of yourself 
generously. Uh, some stages in life, you'll have more to give monetarily. Some stages, it'll be time and energy. Some of the older people are thinking that stage is gone. Um, what or how much you give, though, isn't, isn't really the point here. Uh, perhaps the, the question we should be asking ourselves as we walk out of here, it's one that John Dunning suggested to me earlier this week, is this. It's, in, in what ways are we hoarding God's good gifts? I mean, that's the question. In what ways are we hoarding God's good gifts? And that will help us understand where, where generosity can be poured out in our lives. And, um, so how did the early church end up loving each other so well? I think that's the kind of thing you want to you mimic, and, and you wish there was some easy, easy button, right? Uh, verse 33 tells us, um, and we see, there we see that a great grace was upon them. If we as Manhattan Prez truly love each other in this covenant community, uh, you know, if this covenant community is different from the world around us and how we care for each other, uh, it's the result of God's great grace. And so we pray for God. Uh, we pray for God to give you the particulars, but, but we must be pursuing a bold generosity that is fueled by a trust that God is good and God is powerful and God will provide it for us in the way that we need. A lot of our holding on is because we don't trust he'll provide for us. Uh, we've got one more portion of scripture here. I want you to follow along as I read, uh, starting chapter 5, verse 1. We'll read the first 11 verses. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Ananias and Sapphira lie. That's the first question is, why did they lie? What was the motivation for lying here? This is where you start to see the scripture all tied to each other. Uh, you know, it's a chapter thing, so sometimes you kind of forget the previous chapter and move on. And, and the truth is, this is absolutely tied to the previous section. Remember, everyone is being so generous. They're selling what they have, and they're giving to the church, and the church is sharing with all, and nobody has any need. And, and, and they want to be part of that. They want to be generous people. They want to just be like everyone else in that regard. And, and so they make this, this big show of, of telling them, you know, we're selling this piece of land, and they're saying, we're going to give all the proceeds to, you, to the church to be shared with the, the people. And, and they're not really willing to let go of the money. Uh, so they just say they gave it all. 
but really they've, they've held on to a, a bit of it. And, and so keep in mind here, it was, it was all theirs, right? The text is very clear. They could have kept the land, or they could have kept all the money from the sale, and it would have not been sin. Or they could have said, we were only giving some of the money. All those are opportunities, right, or options. But, but what they do is, is lie. And they lie so that the people will think that they are more generous than they really are. It comes back to that, you know, how do people perceive me? Makes you wonder, though, I mean, how many lies are told because we want to appear better than we really are? Big lies, little lies. I mean, how many times do we slip into conversations about our our good deeds? There's nothing wrong with good deeds. Good deeds are good. They they should even be done in public. It's okay if people see your good deeds. Matthew 5.16 tells us, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a good thing that people see your good works. There's no shame in that. But is our motivation that people glorify God when they see what you're doing or, or that they glorify you for what you're doing? I think one of the ways we, we really guard our hearts from, from glorifying ourselves is, is, is to tell the story of God's work in other people when we see, God, that, see them acting in a way that is loving, in a way that is bringing glory to God. And, and letting our story... Uh, the story of our own good deeds be told by others or, or not at all. Uh, even at the end of chapter 4, which, which we just looked at, I don't know if you remember, but Barnabas was, was praised for his generosity, wasn't he? Uh, Barnabas didn't tell a story. Barnabas didn't write in this. It's, uh, you know, let me tell you about my amazing generosity and how cool I am. Uh, no, Luke tells a story. There it is in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostle, uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, great nickname, uh, he's a, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, generosity like that is, is amazing. It's, it's worth Luke telling us his story. It's an encouragement. Uh, let me give you a real-life example of that. There's, there's one of you I was visiting, and, and uh, he wishes to remain anonymous, so you will not know who this is. Uh, and, and while I was there, I learned that, uh, that he helped a, a neighbor, an elderly neighbor, set up her Wi-Fi. I don't know if you know this, elderly people aren't real good with Wi-Fi setup, typically. Uh, but he did this because uh, it would save her on cellular data, that her phone could connect to this and, and save her a lot of money. Uh, he had the knowledge of how to do that, and he made the time in order to actually do that. And, uh, and so he generously gave to the benefit of his neighbor. Uh, apart from God providentially placing me there at that moment, I would have never known about this at all. At all. Is this perfect person the perfect Christian? No. Is he better than you? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but did they glorify God in this way? Yes. Absolutely. And I share this story with you because I think it does glorify God. And because I think it might spur you on to serve your neighbor in a way that you hadn't thought of before. Uh, just knowing some of these gifts that they don't have. Uh, and if this story were about me, it might be motivated by pride. Let me tell you how awesome I am. And yeah, there's times in my life where I probably do tell stories like that. Um, but <clears throat> this is one of those times where you just see God glorified in, in someone's life, and I wish to share that. Now, I, I imagine there are a number of you sitting here also who have done similar acts of showing love to your neighbor, and, and I didn't happen to be there to, to hear about this, right? Um, and you're never going to be praised publicly for that. That's okay. That's okay. See, the more that God grants you a heart to be okay with not being acknowledged for what you do, the less you're going to feel the temptation to try and make yourself seem better than you are. The temptation that Ananias and Sapphira face here. The temptation that they absolutely give in to. 
And so we've, we've seen their motivation here. Let's talk about the actual sin that they commit. They, they lie. And they plan this lie together. It wasn't even in the moment like, whoa, panic, let's say something. Uh, they actually plan this. They see, lying is one of the Ten Commandments. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness. That means don't lie. Scripture is very clear in a lot of places not to lie. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In fact, what happens to them shouldn't be an absolute shock to us like it tends to be. Proverbs 19, 9 says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Now, to be honest, we are not a real honest culture that we live in. Uh, lies are overwhelmingly accepted as okay. Uh, so much so that I think we read this text and we think, wow, that's extreme. Uh, that escalated quickly. You know, all they did was tell a little lie. At least they were giving something. There were probably other people. They're not giving anything. You know, all these excuses we, we make are a reflection on how poorly we understand that God is holy. Um, by the end of the text, we learn that, that fear came upon all those who hear this. And, and I think our first response to that is, is well, that's terrible. You know, what, what, we kind of want to be, you know, the public relations guy for God in these moments. You know, God, this, this fear thing is not going to sell well. Uh, can we just rebrand and, and maybe not mention it? Uh, just, just your holiness. Maybe not mention how terrible sin is. I mean, you look at this text, and you think, do we see this right? They fear that God might kill them for their sin? You know, is that right? Well, yeah. Because God is holy. So we don't really under, understand holy. Case in point, we, we call cows holy. We call manure holy. That's how much we don't understand what holy is. For a moment, though, think about holiness like you might electricity. Um... You and I, we're not electricity. And so if we come in contact with powerful electricity, we, we die. That's how it works. Um, electricity is not to be taken lightly. But we can take it lightly. We can tell ourselves and tell others, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. But, but when we come into contact with 240 volts of electricity, we learn that it is indeed a big deal. It can kill us, no matter what our opinion of it was before. God's holiness is indeed a big deal. To the lie was spoken to other men here, but, but the text says that they lied ultimately to God. And that's because all sin is ultimately against God. Um, and, and so here, here's my desire for us in response to that. You know, how do we respond to this? Uh, seems simple, right? Just tell the truth. Uh, but, but how do we respond to this? I think we respond in that we be boldly honest. You can see the theme of bold throughout this, right? Um, that we tell the truth even when it might not make us look as good as we want, even when it might not get us what we want. Um, it'll be a work in progress, but let's be in progress with this work. You know, how different would this story have gone if Ananias and Sapphira had just confessed and repented in this moment? Yeah, we lied. We saw everyone being so generous, and we wanted to do that too, but then we felt like we couldn't give it all. We, we needed some of it. And so we lied so you'd think that we were as generous as we'd seen everyone else being. You think they would have found 
forgiveness and grace and mercy in that moment? I do too. So we've covered a, a lot of text today, uh, each of these calling us to some aspect of boldness. Uh, a boldness that's only possible as we look to God to be our strength. A, a boldness to speak the word of God, even in scary situations. Uh, a boldness to let go of what, what God has placed in our possessions uh, so that we might be generous to our fellow Christians and others. And, and a boldness to tell the truth even when it might reflect on us poorly. 